Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by an old graduate school friend of mine, Robert Bartlett, who's going to talk to us about two translations of three works from the original Greek that he's not only translated, but has also written interpretive essays about. Um, These two books were published recently. Uh, The first one, Against Demagogues, What Aristophanes Can Teach Us About the Perils of Populism and the Fate of Democracy, was published in 2020 by the University of California Press. And the other text is Aristotle's Art of Rhetoric, translated with an interpretive essay. This was published by the University of Chicago in 2019, but is newly out in um, paperback. And so I asked Bob to join us today to talk about both of these works um, and his life translating things from the Greek um, and why that's important to us as well in our our common and contemporary world. Um, Bob, if you'd like to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to both of these projects, um, I would appreciate it. Welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Lily. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here, to see and to hear you again. It's been a while. Um, graduate school was a long time ago. Um, you know, in graduate school, speaking of, my main interest was classical political philosophy generally. Uh, and that has remained true. And, and so I, I began to study ancient Greek then. Um, and w- together with Susan Collins, uh, we produced a translation of the uh, Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle, which, which found an audience we were pleased uh, to see. And, and so we've, I've found translating to be a helpful way for me to get to know the texts better. It's very helpful for teaching, um, and insofar as the, the translations have proved helpful to other people, uh, I think it's it's a worthwhile, I hope it's a worthwhile activity. Um, with regard to the art of rhetoric, it was a book that I didn't know well, uh, and I wanted to get to know it better. So for selfish reasons, I started studying it and then decided to translate it. And I find it to be a really a fascinating account of the art of persuasion. Um, and it's a defense of the art of persuasion because it needs defense. It's controversial. Uh, after all, rhetoric can be a dirty word. That's mere rhetoric. Um, and so Aristotle at the beginning tries to sort of defend it. And I was interested in that defense. But he also has a classic, very influential account of what it is, its kinds, uh, the way you persuade people, the proofs or modes of persuasion and so on. Um, so that was very simply that book. Um, it, I think it's the single most influential book about rhetoric ever written. I think that's true to say. Its influence was uh, constant through the ancient world. Cicero, Quintilian, both learned from it, referred to it. It was picked up in the Middle Ages, changed in various ways, adapted and adopted, but still the core of it remained. Really up to Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes, and Hobbes thought it was so important that you know he had to attack it, although he was very influenced by it too. Um, Aristotle is, let's say, an acquired taste. It's a taste that I've acquired, but he tends to, to be a little bit dry, at least for students, coming to him for the first time. 
there's a good reason why there's a long tradition of commentary on Aristotle you know, in the Middle Ages and beyond. They'll give one line of his text and then two pages of commentary. Aquinas maybe is the most famous in that regard. And the second book that I did uh, recently, in some ways could not be more different. Yes, it was written in ancient Greek, um, but that's about it. Uh, the two plays of Aristophanes uh, that I translated under the heading Against Demagogues. Uh, Aristophanes uh, is one of the great comic poets. He's the certainly the greatest exemplar of what's called old comedy. And he wrote probably 40 some odd plays that we know of, but 11 survive. And so my book is a translation of the first two that are extant, the earliest two extant plays. And they're both united uh, by their political concerns, the health of Athenian democracy. Uh, the first play, which is called The Acarnians, is, for the most part, at least an anti-war play. In 431, uh, the war broke out between the two superpowers of the day, Athens on the one hand and Sparta on the other, and their respective allies or subjects. And so it's an anti-war play. Um, the second play, and we can get into more detail about each of them if you like, uh, is called The Knights. And it, it's more directly an attack on a man named Cleon, who was a notorious demagogue in Athens, hugely popular for a time, very influential and extremely nasty. And Aristophanes, in his brave way, takes him on. He, he's also mocked in the earlier play, The Acarnians, um, but he's really the focus of the second play. And the second play, The Knights, contains the earliest um, appearance that we have, at least, of the word demagogue. That is a Greek term. Um, we can talk more about that if you like. Uh, the Acarnians was produced in 425 BC, and The Knights the next year in 424. Both of them won first prize in their respective festivals, so they were smash hits. Uh, <laughs> And for those in our audience who maybe haven't read Aristophanes or haven't read him in a long time, they're remarkable plays. I mean, they're comedies. Yes, there are allusions to things and so on, which, which have to be explained. But there are, at least to me, there are jokes which, which travel quite well. Um, they can be amazingly raunchy, dirty. Um, the human body is as funny then as it is now, or it can be made to be. Uh, and he just clearly delights in all kinds of parody, mockery, blasphemy, <laughs> his specialty in some of the plays, uh, and so on. So these two books, in some ways, as I say, the, the Aristotle, The Art of Rhetoric, and then the two plays of Aristophanes, <clears throat> in some ways they couldn't be more different, austere Aristotle, zany and madcap Aristophanes. But what unites the projects and what brought me at least in part to them both, is that in their different ways, they're both concerned with the health of democracy, democratic practice, rhetoric in the one case, the abuse of rhetoric, really. I mean, what's a demagogue except a master of the abuse of, of rhetoric, of persuading crowds of people to do things that are better for the demagogue than they are for the people or the common good? And so there is actually a kind of thread that runs through both books. Um, so if you're reading The Art of Rhetoric and you need a break from 
Aristotle's <laughs> austerity, let's call it. Well, you can you can turn to Aristophanes and get a, a few dirty jokes to help you along the way. And and that was why I wanted you to talk about both books when I approached you about talking about one of them. I can't remember which one. I said, "Hey, let's do this podcast." And you're like, "Well, I got two. So <laughs> I said, "Well, let's do both." Um, and then you know, it's it's three plays, two plays, one one Aristotle. Um, but as you note, the 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 theme that runs through them is not only this question of the health of democracy, but really this question also of how somebody speaks to the people. Um, and and with the critique of Cleon in the Knights, as well as the um, other play, um, which I don't want to butcher at the moment. The Acarnians. <laughs> the Acarnians, thank you. Uh, it is this question of sort of how do we see and interpret and understand as the people, the demos, um, the person who may want political power or have it, and how they speak to us. So I wanted to ask you first a bit about Aristotle's art of rhetoric, um, because as you also note, uh, Hobbes attacks this, um, and, and he attacks a lot of Aristotle, as you also point out in your interpretation, in your interpretive essay. Um, and there's a reason for it. Why does Hobbes have to take on Aristotle, most of his writing, um, in order to sort of, to some degree, establish his own political project? Yeah, that, that's a, a very good and difficult question. I would say that Hobbes's main enemy was established learning, let's say, the universities. And the universities were a combination of Christianity and Aristotle. Aristotle, he calls it at one point. So it was a kind of, from his point of view, a kind of toxic mix of, mix of errors. Attacking Christianity directly was a somewhat dangerous business, less so attacking Aristotle, which he did. There's hardly been a worse book ever written about politics. The metaphysics is just nonsense, you know, <laughs> these outrageous things he says in the Leviathan and elsewhere. Um, but there is an attack also on rhetoric, however much he, he Hobbes, I think, had respect for the rhetoric. In fact, there's a remark recorded of him saying that, you know, it's all terrible, except the parts of animals and the rhetoric. There's there's something good there, he said. And his own account, Hobbes' own account of the passions, which is central to his whole political philosophy, really, you know, fear of violent death, that's a passion. It's the bedrock of his political science. A lot of that comes from Aristotle's account of the passions in book two of the rhetoric. And I might just say, in sort of in passing, one of the striking things about the rhetoric is its attention to the passions. You might think you'd find that in, in Aristotle's account of the soul, the anima. It's not there. It's in the rhetoric. Heidegger notes this in Being in Time. He was very impressed by the, the account of the passions in book two. So another reason to read the rhetoric, even if you don't have a, a direct interest in rhetoric, is to, to, to sort of see his account of the human soul or the passions that, that um, befall the human soul. So Hobbes attacked Aristotle um, I mean, the simple answer is that he, he thought he had a new political science, the first one deserving of the name. And so you got to get rid of the old stuff. And the old stuff was this, as I say, this mix of sort of Christian theology slash Aristotle. Um, he, he also, Hobbes, um, thought that we were entering a new age of enlightenment. Maybe we were. And that there was a, at least a, a qualified hope in him, I think, that mere rhetoric 
would be less necessary than ever before. Why? Because we were going to change the character of the political community, the cave, to use Plato's famous image. We're going we're gonna to admit the, the, the light of the sun, at least eventually, you know, to, to, to make use of the metaphor of enlightenment. And therefore, mere persuasion would become less important. Why? We'll live by science, by knowledge. And when we diffuse science or knowledge, rhetoric is going to shrink. I leave it as an open question whether we're living in the light of science and knowledge and whether rhetoric has in fact shrunk. I don't think it has. But that, I think, at least was the part of the hope of Hobbes and other Enlightenment thinkers. And I, I wanted to ask you in this regard also, Aristotle takes up the question of rhetoric um, and, and it's much more expansive than what we usually associate with the term itself, um, as you note, because it's not just the person who's speaking nice words or cruel words. It is about how the, the words are playing on emotions, how the speaker is able to engage the demos in a variety of different ways. Um, and so in this regard, you also talk about the fact that Aristotle is drawing on sort of the emotions as a kind of form to integrate into a justice. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, maybe it would be helpful for me to give his formal definition of rhetoric. Let rhetoric be a capacity to observe what admits of being persuasive in the given case. So what can be persuasive? Now, what persuades? Three things, he says. There are three proofs, as it's sometimes translated, or as I prefer to translate it, modes of persuasion. Yeah, And this is perhaps the most famous part of the, the rhetoric. Um, ethos, pathos, and logos, they happen to rhyme. Um, someone called this the three musketeers of rhetoric. I did not come up with that, but someone else did. So let me just briefly say what these are. Ethos, that means character. Yeah. And so one of the modes of persuasion, how do you get the audience on your side to convince them that you have a good character, your character? So if if Dr. Fauci says, you know, I've been an epidemiologist for 40 years and so on, there's a kind of an appeal to an authority there. I have whether it's persuasive or not, but that's the attempt, at least the, the ethos of the speaker is a way to persuade your audience that you're a good person or that you have a certain expertise, as the case may be. The second mode of persuasion is pathos. And this, I think, is the most controversial. It means passion. And it's the ability to rouse or quell a given passion in your audience. Uh, anger, gentleness, pity, fear. He goes through all of these. How do, you raise, how, do you, how do you incite them or foster them? How do you calm them down? And the reason why this is so controversial, I think, is the obvious that it, it can lead to manipulation, simple manipulation. In a way, it is manipulation, however you, you slice it. Um, and he goes through these things and how to do it. Uh, the first one he takes up, the, the passion that he takes up at greatest length is not surprisingly anger. You know, if you can get a jury in a criminal trial to be angry at the defendant, <laughs> it's a done deal. <laughs> Or the other side, if the prosecuting attorneys have, have riled you, the audience up, you need to calm them down, get rid of that anger, replace it if you can with pity. You know? And again, there are sort of instructions on how to do that. The third and final sort of mode of proof is logos, the speech itself. 
when, when I was working on this, it, it struck me as strange that this is only one of three. You'd think it would be, if not everything, then, you know, 90% of it. It isn't. And there he does talk about things like, you know, the construction of an argument, the premises, the conclusion, the famous topics that he goes through. Um, and so only one of the three modes of persuasion or so-called proofs deals with the construction of an argument as an argument, you know, the use of facts, um, again, the construction of an argument and so on. But really the stress I would say is more on the character conveying a sense of your character and the passion in the audience. And in this regard, it certainly is extremely political um, in yeah. terms of, because <clears throat> we're not talking about the logical structuring of the argument itself that we see in classical texts and more contemporary ones, but it is understanding who the speaker is and what they're portraying and what they want to trigger in the audience itself. Yes, exactly. And there, there are several places where he'll say, you know, you, the, the more facts you have about the case, if you want to praise Athens, uh, or, or you need to know some facts about them, or if you, is, should we or should we not go to war? Well, you need some facts about the enemy, the circumstances, and so on. He can't give us those things. All he can do is tell us to find them out and how to use them. Um, so there are sort of general instructions of that kind. Um, the more specific specificities you have, the specifics you have, the better, the more persuasive you'll be, that sort of thing. And and so in making this argument about rhetoric, about the role of rhetoric and its and its fairly broad construction as you're laying out the three musketeers of of the sort of composite understanding, that this is in fact a much more political text than it is a kind of how-to manual. Yeah, it's a, it's. I've wondered about that, how to characterize it as a book. It's partly theoretical and partly practical. It isn't simply a how-to manual, although there are sections of it which say, do this, don't do that. It's somewhere in between. And in a way, I wonder whether that doesn't reflect the character of rhetoric itself. You have to understand certain things about the human passions, for example, but that won't by itself get make you a good speaker. Or give you a good speech. You have to somehow put into practice those broader principles. And, and the book, I think, tries to do that. Um, and I think it largely succeeds in it. Yeah. And, and so in, in this regard, it certainly makes sense that you also followed up the translation of the ethics by paying attention to this part of Aristotle, um, which is, in fact, unpacking a lot of sort of political dimensions of life in a political dynamic, um, how yeah. not only one speaks, but how one receives the, the spoken words and thinks about them. Yeah. Um, yeah. He himself explicitly links the books. Um, one of the interesting things about the rhetoric, it must've been written relatively late. Nobody knows exactly when, but he refers explicitly to the politics. So one of the things he says, for example, is if you are speaking to a democracy, you need to know something about what that democracy cherishes or an oligarchy or a kingship and so on. And he says, but for more on that, see the politics. <laughs> you know? um, he refers explicitly to the ethics, the study of character, very important um, for rhetoric and for other purposes. He refers to the poetics, the analytics, which are his logical writings, uh, things like that. So in a way, the rhetoric is a kind of gateway to other 
the study of other sciences and other other fields or subfields. And and so in in this regard, Aristotle also, while he came after Aristophanes, sets us up for some of the conversation about um, the two plays that are the focus of the book that you have written, which, as you know, it has it's not simply titled uh, with Aristophanes plays. You write it as titled Against Demagogues. Um, and, and in a certain sense, what we can learn about the perils of populism and the fate of democracy. So in, in this capacity, again, people may be more familiar with plays by Aristophanes, um, like The Clouds or something. Um, but these two plays, as you say, are the earliest ones that, that we have um, in, in full text, I guess. Um, and that they both are sort of talking about the potential threat that somebody who embodies a demagogic approach um, has with regard to democracy. And we've, in this contemporary period in the United States and elsewhere, um, we may have some familiarity with um, what we call demagoguery. Yeah. Uh, so, so you note that this is the first place where the term itself is noted. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, which I found really fascinating? Sure. Yeah, it appears in The Knights, the second play, which was produced, as I said, in 424. Demagoguery. Um, first of all, the demos. What does that mean? Obviously, it's the root of democracy. It is a class distinction in ancient Greece. Demos. You can translate it the people, but that's a little bit misleading to us because I think we tend to think of we the people, i.e. 100% of the people, which is not what it meant. It meant the great majority who were poor. There wasn't really a middle class, certainly not in our sense in the ancient Greek world. There were the few and the many. And the few, the oligoi, if they had power, tended to form oligarchies, hence the name. Uh, and so democracy meant originally the rule of the demos, the poor, and since there wasn't free public education the way we have it, largely uneducated too. So it was the rule of a, of a certain class or kind. And that's important, I think, because the demos, at least as Aristophanes presents it, is particularly liable to, uh, being, to being manipulated by a demagogue. I should say that the word um, is neutral. It does not necessarily have a bad connotation. There are other uses of it in the extant literature. It just means leading the demos. So you could think of, I don't know, Churchill in the Second World War, depending on your your view of Churchill, uh, an upstanding leader um, who who did have the, the community with a common good in mind and, and saw the people through some test or trial. But it very soon came to have, and it has in the Knights, a negative connotation. And th the star, or the anti-star of this show is a man named Cleon, who was a, an historical figure uh, in Athens. In the play, he's, he's called Paphlagon, which roughly means blusterer, windbag, maybe. And the three central characters are Cleon and then two actual generals, Nicias and Demosthenes, each in his own way very impressive, had a big role in the Peloponnesian War, ultimately died in that war several years, quite a few years after the, the dramatic date of the play. Um, and the, two, and the, the sort of comic conceit of the knights is that there's a Mr. Demos, Right. He, there's, so Athens is transformed into a single household run by an old, half-deaf, rather doddering old man 
named Demos, and he has three household servants or slaves, Cleon, Nicias, and Demosthenes. And Demos has taken, Mr. Demos has taken Cleon in and the other servants are, you know, suffering terribly because he's just horrible to them. And they see that he's hoodwinking Mr. Demos. How does he do it? Uh, and uh, among the more interesting, fascinating, I think, accounts of this in the play are, are the, the tools, let's say, of the demagogue. So there are long passages of just the most abject flattery of Mr. Demos, how wonderful he is. Um, even while secretly or behind Mr. Demos's back despising him. So it's a kind of psychologically unhealthy situation. You flatter someone you despise. Um, this is a characteristic of Cleon, the demagogue. There is an endless promise of benefits. Yes. Um, pleasures, delights, health care of all kinds, a cushion for your bottom. You know? um, and all of it, of course, free. No one will have to pay for any of this. It will all just be given free to the people. Um, and so Aristophanes in this way is very tough on Cleon. I mean, he's made to suffer horrible indignities. Um, and of course, he gets his comeuppance in the end in the play. Um, but I think also one of the, the more interesting things for us, and it's a kind of delicate question, but Aristophanes brings it out, is that for there to be an effective demagogue, you need a demos ready to be led. And as bad as Cleon is, and he really gets walloped in this play, I think Aristophanes also says to his Athenian audience, remember, this is a play, it's being produced, by this time, he's already a very famous playwright, so it's a big deal when there's a new Aristophanes play. He says to his fellow citizens, there's a problem with you too. You know? <laughs> um, he does it with humor, which is why he can take certain liberties, I think. Um, it, you need a demos ready to be misled. And there's an interesting scene toward the end where um, there's a trading back and forth of alleged oracles religious, allegedly religious uh, signs that are said, of course, to support either Cleon or to be against Cleon. Um, and that too is an interesting indication that the Athenian people are too much inclined to take their political bearings by religious or quasi-religious, allegedly religious signs, that they're addicted to divination and the like. And this is causing them political problems. They're, it's another means to be manipulated by them. I, sh I should say that the, the opponent of Cleon in the play isn't directly, at least, either Demosthenes or Nicias, who are upper class, they're quite wealthy. They find as their kind of Trojan horse, a very humble sausage seller. <laughs> and they say, you, you're going to be the next leader of Athens. And he's very modest and he's extremely crude, but very funny. Uh, and they he's the horse they back in order to topple Cleon. They need someone of the people who can out Cleon Cleon, who can match him toe-to-toe -to -toe in vulgarities and curses and so on, a shamelessness, as Aristophanes puts it, but who also turns out to be kind of a decent guy, actually. He is a kind of man of the people humble sausage seller that he is. He doesn't have these pretensions to grandeur that Cleon has. He doesn't think he's better than the people that Cleon certainly thinks. 
Um, and he proves to be a kind of natural democratic politician. Uh, uh, and, and so in a way, Aristophanes doesn't, I mean, what's the simple point of the play? Cleon is bad news and we got to get rid of him. And what's the play? It's, a, it, it's an extended mockery of this public figure. And humor, as some of our satirists know, is a pretty good weapon. It, it can puncture, deflate, uh, strip the pretenses off somebody who thinks there's something special. Aristophanes didn't seem to think that the Athenian democracy was going to be radically changed, but that what we could hope for is a better leader from among the people. Maybe together with the knights of the title who were upper class. If you can afford a horse, you were upper class. And so they, they do form a kind of alliance. The knights back the sausage seller. And so maybe there's a suggestion of a kind of mixed regime, something like that. So that in in the knights, it brings together the the common people or the, the poor, the uneducated, the sausage seller with the aristocrats to produce a better democracy um, exactly. That is more possibly protected from demagoguery. One hopes, <laughs> and and Aristophanes um, is not shy about speaking about himself in his plays and boasting about himself. And he does say, "I will teach you the just things." You know, you may not like it, but I'm going to do it. And and so there is a suggestion, I think, that my plays. They're fun, they're outrageous, they're immensely clever, no one's cleverer than I am. But they also form, perform a kind of public responsibility uh, that I'm trying to make the city better, or at least less bad. And he does it with humor. And is he, he's not in the Knights, but he's in the other play. Is that correct? Right. Um, he, he turns out to be hiding behind the lead character of the Acarnians. But there are often um, passages in the plays, not all of them, but, but a number of them, the co- part of the choral ode, where he will, the chorus will turn and take on the persona of Aristophanes, I, you know, maybe the most famous is in the clouds, a revised version of the clouds. He says, when I first put this play on, it didn't win first prize and it should have because it's my best play. <laughs> he complains to the audience, you knuckleheads, you didn't give it first prize and so on. Um, Oh, the Acarnians, maybe I'll just speak, speak briefly about the Acarnians. Um, it's the first play we have. The, uh, Athens was divided into deans or districts, kind of like New York City. And the Acarnians came from Acarni, which was large, very rural, and sort of salt of the earth types. And the Acarnians we meet, they form the chorus, were veterans of uh, the Persian Wars. Think World War II, the greatest generation, that kind of thing. Very conservative, rural. They don't like newfangled ways. Um, And they get wind of the fact that this central character, Dikaiopolis, who turns out to be Aristophanes, is so sick of the war that he, Dikaiopolis, tries to get the the Athenian assembly to vote for peace. Um, It's, of course, a complete failure. And so he decides, well, I'm going to have a private peace. You know, so if when Jane Fonda went to Hanoi, caused some trouble, uh, well, Dikaiopolis goes Jane Fonda one or two better. He strikes a private peace with Sparta. And this, the patriotic, Athenian-loving Acarnians, they want to kill him, literally, when they get wind of this. He's a traitor. 
And part of the action of the play is to try to convince even the Acarnians that A, the war is a bad idea. It was started for foolish reasons and it's devastating to Athens, especially the people in the country. Uh, and that we should indeed uh, sue for peace or at least um, take peace when it's, when it's prudent to take it. And a lot of the play, part of the play, the end of the play is given over to a remarkable empirical case for the pleasures of peace, which is to say, Dikaiopolis enjoys his private peace and we see him enjoying his private peace with all kinds of shenanigans and zany things, um, booze and sex and delicious food and so on. And so it's a kind of extended com comic account of the pleasures of peace as distinguished from war. And in, in this regard, both plays are comedies. And you've talked a little bit about how humor is something that can be used as a weapon. And Aristophanes mostly writes these sort of lampoonish comedies that really, you know, have cartoon-like characters in them. Yeah. Um, why, why was he interested in using comedy as opposed to tragedy? Uh, and, and conveying a political message through, you know, body jokes. Right. That actually, I think, is a, a long and complex question. Um, I would say two things. First, that we can, if we're laughing, it seems to be impossible to be angry. The human soul can't accommodate both of those passions at the same time. And so if he can make us laugh, he can also convey a message. So in the nights, there's really, there are criticisms of the Athenian people couched in humor. So the joke might sting a little, but it's still, you're still laughing. The second thing is that in a way he does use tragedy. In the Acarnians, there's an interesting scene. Dikaiopolis is in big trouble, as I said, with the Acarnians. They want to get him. And so what does he do? He goes to Euripides, the great tragedian. Why? because only tragedy can evoke pity. And there's, of course, it's a comic scene and he makes fun of Euripides as he always does. But the message I think is clear that comedy as comedy can only go so far. And that to get himself out of his fix, he needs also pity. And that's the preserve of tragedy. So in a way, it's a kind of doffing of the hat to the power of, tra of tragedy and an indication of the limits of comedy. Uh, I mean, the most that he can do is refer to pity he can't really evoke it because pity's not. If you if you feel pity, you're not. It's not funny. It's not pleasant in a way. Um, so it, there's a kind of division of labor between comedy and tragedy. And and to go back to my first point, I think he was able to be in a way didactic or politically responsible, critical, through humor. The honey, you know, that 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 softens the bitter. And, and in this regard, of the two plays, which one do you find more effective in communicating what... Probably the knights where, which, and the demagogue, the theme of demagoguery, um, rather than the, the pro or the anti-war play, um, although that has resonances too, to be sure. But, but I think probably the knights is the more immediately accessible play and more, perhaps more relevant today. And, and in terms of its, its relevance, particularly for us today, because it is a critique of demagoguery, how do we understand, particularly coming from 
this origin of the term itself and the way that we think about it, the line between um, useful rhetoric in the way that Aristotle would think about it, that's important, um, that is rallying the troops around the flag, um, and where it descends into demagoguery, where it's manipulation. Because my students often ask me that question when we talk about the Federalist Papers, because they are railing against demagoguery. Right. Yeah. It's a good and difficult question. In a way, it reminds me, I'll go back to Aristotle. As I said, he begins with the defensive rhetoric. That's the, in a way, the opening. This is a good thing. But as his defense unfolds, it becomes clear that he's aware that it needs a defense, which is to say, it's of its essence a complicated thing. I would put it this way. It's a loaded gun. And loaded guns can be used for good and for ill. And no book on rhetoric by itself can guarantee that you'll use it for good. In a way, you could criticize Aristotle. Aren't you making rhetoric more precise, clearer, and so on? Aren't you making a, a gun that has a, I don't know, a better sight on it or something? And I think the answer that is yes. But in defense of Aristotle, I would say that there can be no substitute for prudence or political judgment on the ground, on the spot, and that there's going to be rhetoric, persuasive speech, whether we like it or not. It's been with us since I think human beings grouped together um, in, in some kind of gatherings, collectives, um, and that he recognizes that fact and says, look, he acknowledges that <laughs> this has the potential to, um, to be misused. And all he can do, I think, is try to inform a broader reading public of what rhetoric is and both its strengths and its potential dangers. Because if you're aware of the potential dangers, in other words, you can be more alive to them. So, for example, his account of the passions and their, um, their fostering or their quieting. If you read that and you think, ah, this is how you foster anger. And then, you know, a, a month later, you hear someone giving a speech. Um, and, and saying, you know, the enemy is X. You, you could, if you have some self-possession or reflection, you could say, ah, wait a minute. <laughs> the anger that I was just starting to feel, is this justified or is it being manufactured? Um, sometimes when I teach rhetoric, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll begin by, by saying something like, you know, this, this group of students is the best group of students I have ever had in 20 years of university teaching. Oh, you know, flattery, flattery. And at a certain point, because the course is about rhetoric, a student will say, wait a minute. <laughs> They're on Bartlett, are you lying? <laughs> <laughs> I say, yes, I am lying. But I had you in the palm of my hand. You know? So when you know the tools of rhetoric, you can be more alive to their use, both as a speaker, but also as an audience member. And so I think he does what he can to, to make it um, its use more responsible. It's going to be used one way or the other. So better to do it with our eyes open. And then we have Aristophanes who sort of shows us its use and we can sort of say, ah, yes, there's an, there's an example. So I will carry that example with me when I hear other politicians speaking and know and if, if before you that came they are to my play, being demagogues yeah, and not. If before you came to my play, yes. If before you came to my play, you thought Cleon was a terrific fellow, well, maybe he's not so terrific. <laughs>
So Bob, what are you working on now that you've finished these lovely translations and thinking about the use of rhetoric in politics? I'm kind of in between projects. I'm, I've been slowly writing a book on Aristotle's political thought for a while. Um, what form that's going to take, I'm not sure if it ever takes a form. Um, so I'm, I'm in a way I'm catching my breath a bit. Well, if you finish the book on Aristotle's political thought, I'd love to talk to you about it on the New Books Network. Thank you. This has been fun. Um, I want to thank Bob Bartlett, Robert Bartlett, for joining me today to talk about Against Demagogues, um, what Aristophanes can teach us about the perils of populism and the fate of democracy, and Aristotle's Art of Rhetoric, um, which was published by the University of Chicago Press. The first one, Against Demagogues, was published by the University of California Press. I assume these are both available at those presses' websites? They are indeed. And if there is a brick and mortar store with an online presence that's not a giant big box store that you would like to give a shout out to, please feel free to do that now. Um, <laughs> or not. <laughs> Use your local bookstore. There you go. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today, Bob. It's been a pleasure to talk it to you. It has been a pleasure. Thanks, Lily. <laughs>